Okairi. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Yonsei Podcast, brought to you by Nikkei Rising and Tadaima, a virtual pilgrimage. My name is Johnny Narita, and I'm a Yonsei, and today we're going to be talking about a question of loyalty. Hey, y'all. I'm Matthew, a Gosei, also with Nikkei Rising, and together with Johnny, we'll be looking today at the infamous loyalty questionnaire and the ways that Japanese Americans had to contend with the questionnaire and uh, the subsequent reactions it brought from the community. So today I'd like to introduce our guests. First of all, we have uh, Bethany Narita, who happens to be my sister. She's a UW grad and activist, and we say that she's the quote-unquote historian of our family. She's done a lot of research about our grandfather and our great-grandfather, who we're going to be talking about today, as they are they were greatly affected by the loyalty questionnaire. Hello. Our next guest is Andy Kimura, a Yonsei and currently serves as the education manager at the Go For Broke National Education Center in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Hi. Sorry. Hi. (laughs) Okay, so today we'd like to start the conversation. Uh, We should start out by maybe talking about our our knowledge of the loyalty questionnaire, uh, whether that's uh, personal or just what you know about it in general. Sure, I can start with a little bit about the background of the loyalty questionnaire. So the loyalty questionnaire was actually known as Form 304A, uh, which the full title was Statement of United States Citizen of Japanese Ancestry. Uh, And the form was actually created by the Army, the Wartime Relocation Authority, as well as the Office of Naval Intelligence as a way to figure out the loyalty of Nisei that they were looking to eventually uh, draft or ask to volunteer for combat duty. Uh, So the Army developed the form, was originally meant to only go out to Nisei men, but the WRA wanted to, on the basis of uh, government influence, wanted to try and find out the supposed loyalty of all of the incarcerated Japanese Americans. And so the WRA created their own versions that were meant to go out to Issei and Nisei women. Um, The only problem with that was they actually copy and pasted basically the questions from the Nisei Army uniform. forms and put them onto a WRA form uh, that was meant for Issei and Nisei. And so initially, uh, on these forms, at the very end, questions 27 and 28, which became the most infamous part of the loyalty questionnaire, uh, initially asked Nisei men if they were willing to serve on combat duty for the United States Army wherever ordered, and then asked Issei and Nisei women if they would help out or volunteer in some other way, um, whether that be with the Women Auxiliary Corps for the U.S. Army, for Nisei women, or for Issei working on uh, creating uh, things that, that the military needed, whether that be camouflage nets or other um, sorts of things that they could make that were unable to be sabotaged, air quotes around that. Um, and then question 28 for all of them asked uh, if they, if regardless of their citizenship, uh, regardless of their ESA or NISA, asked if they will swear unqualified allegiance to the United States and forswear any allegiance to the uh, Emperor of Japan. And if you kind of think about those two questions and kind of think about the duress and stress that they were under when these questions were asked, you can kind of see why uh, they would be so problematic later down the line, Uh, especially question 28, because in some cases you either have, for the Nisei, you're basically saying that they've, they were not American to begin with and that they've always been loyal to Japan. And for the Issei who have no citizenship, you're asking them to renounce their Japanese citizenship, 
when at the same time they can't get American citizenship because it's illegal to in the country. And so both of these questions kind of create this dynamic, which eventually is where we come up with these terms, yes, yes, and no, no, that come later down the line. Um, and so for my own family, my grandfather was seven years old uh, when he went to camp. And so he was too young to answer the question there. And his father, my great, great grandfather was already in his late thirties, early forties and was too old for the army. Um, and so they did what most families did. They answered yes and yes to both questions and remained together, stayed in the camp. Um, but out of the 120,000 uh, Japanese Americans that were incarcerated, uh, 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 by the end of the war, about 20,000, um, a little under 20,000 had ended up answering no, no, or in some way, shape, or form, uh, their answers qualified them as no's. And so eventually they would be segregated to Tule Lake um, as part of the Army's plan after the loyalty questionnaire came out. Thanks, Matt, for that historical information and sharing your family's story. Bethany, do you want to go next? Sure. Our grandpa, my mom's father, was a teenager um, when he was incarcerated at Minidoka. I had the privilege of hearing some of his stories about the loyalty questionnaire. Um, he didn't talk about it very often, but um, in the last few years of his life, um, after going on the Minidoka pilgrimage, and when I was taking some classes at UW um, from Dr. Kashima and Dr. Sumida, um, I would share with my grandpa what I was learning in those classes, and that slowly, um, you know, opened up a conversation. And he would share a little bit more tidbits than I had ever heard in my entire life. So he told me that with the question, with the questionnaire, um, those two infamous questions of, you know, will you fight for the U.S. Army, and the other one, um, do you relinquish all loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? These are like very summarized <laughs> um, versions of the questions. But he said no and yes. Before recording this podcast, I was listening to uh, a voice recording of one of our conversations. And he had said that um, he, wasn't, he couldn't remember if he wrote it on the questionnaire or later on. Yeah, later on, just like bringing it up in conversation. But he had qualified his answer saying like, no, I won't fight for the U.S. Army. However, you know, I have no problem fighting as long as you release me and my family from the Minidoka camp. Because basically it was um, in protest of his uh, constitutional rights. Like, why should I risk my life? For this country if you're not even treating me as a u.s citizen and this was a decision that he came up with his own on his own he said that his parents you know didn't try to sway him one way or another but keep in mind he was a young teenager you know like 17 or 18 even though like the the consequences of his decision you know had a very brutal impact on his life and his family, I just remember telling him, like, you know, I'm so proud of you. Like, what a decision to make. Like, there's no right decisions when you're in this terrible situation that the U.S. government has put you in. But to be this teenager and to, you know, have those those values and to be able to speak out, you know, on your behalf, I was like, dang, I'm so proud of you, Grandpa. So for me, uh, growing up, I was really like 
ignorant and I thought that everybody's grandfathers fought um, for the 442 or the MIS just because both my grandparents did, um, only to later re- realize uh, that that's definitely not the case and um, how rare it would be even to just have one relative, let alone two, um, fight. And so it wasn't until my later years, like in college, where I really started to look a little deeper and ask a little bit more questions from my family um, into the, our history. Um, I always grew up knowing that my maternal grandfather was in the 100th Italian. Um, my grandma was very proud of that fact. And um, her license plate was even 100 BN for the 100th Battalion. She's super involved in Go for Broke National Education Center, um, part of the reason why I'm currently working there. So to me, like knowing that he served, served in the 100th, like good of him. And um, on my other side, for my paternal side, that grandfather was actually in the MIS or the Military Intelligence Service. I didn't know much besides that. It was just kind of like those two facts growing up and not really understanding the implications or why they ended up serving Um, and actually not even realizing that my paternal grandfather, the one that served in the MIS, was actually already in the Army before World War II started. So he didn't even have to answer the loyalty questionnaire. And I only found that out kind of digging a little deeper into like what camp he um, came out of, only to find out he didn't actually come out of camp because he never went to camp. Um, So that was kind of a shock. Um, So what happened to his um, family uh, since he was already part of the military? Uh, he, his, he had a sister and his sister ended up going to Amachi in Colorado. Um, but his parents, I am not sure. I know that they, uh, were divorced and his father remarried. Um, but I'm not sure where that part of the family went. So, and this is things that I only found out recently. So definitely have work to do in, um, looking more into that. And as for my maternal grandfather, the one that was in the hundreds, I guess I took, took for granted the fact that knowing that he served and not looking too much further into that. So I actually haven't looked at his record to see how he answered the loyalty questionnaire. I'm assuming it's a yes, yes situation um, based off of his age and seeing when he was actually drafted. Yeah. Can't 100% sure say how he answered that. Thanks for sharing that. That's like a really interesting, unique uh, family history, like having somebody that's already in the military um, and then facing all of these things. The next thing I wanted to talk to you guys about is how do you think the loyalty questionnaire affects us today? Like what were the ramifications? Well, I think there was definitely a divide in the community back then. Um, that kind of still lingers on today between those that answered yes or some form of yes and those that said no. I think it's only more recently that the idea of standing up and going against um, kind of the norm or what's expected of you is looked at as something more admirable. Um, And in the sense of fighting for your rights and fighting for everyone's rights and what is right and what your constitutional rights are, um, versus like maybe what would be easier or seen as more like to go with the flow and the whole um, shikata ganai 
kind of mentality. Or like it cannot be helped, basically. So and if it can't be helped, then the idea behind that is like why fight it? Like it's um to just kind of go with the flow and accept it and um kind of persevere and move on. Yeah, I think there is definitely a divide um within the community and I can even tell that in kind of how my grandparents spoke about it, not necessarily um, against people who who didn't serve, but um, I guess like overcompensating in the fact that my grandparents did serve. So in that sense, and even amongst the veteran community, like I work for an organization that was founded by the veterans. So for those also unfamiliar with Gopher Broke's work, Gopher Broke National Education Center was started 31 years ago by Japanese American veterans who fought in World War II in the segregated units of the 100th, the 442nd, um, or the MIS. And they wanted a way to remember those that they fought alongside with. So um, to do that, they decided to build a monument in Little Tokyo. But after the monument was built, the organization wanted didn't want to stop there. So they decided to start recording oral histories. And um, I think that's one of our biggest assets right now is that we have around 1,200 different oral histories, mainly from Japanese-American World War II veterans. Um, and from that, like our organization has grown to what it is today. But having an opportunity to work for Go For Broke um, and being able to listen to so many of the Hanashi oral histories, there are a lot of different interpretations of the loyalty questionnaire. I think it's really easy to get caught up in generalizing that everybody wanted to fight or felt like they answered yes to have to prove their loyalty. But um, we know that that's not really the case because as you mentioned with the questionnaire, um, there's so many nuances to it, right? And so many uncertainties um, that yes, of course, there are going to be people who answered um, yes because they did want to prove their loyalty. But then there's also people that just said yes, um, kind of like, Joni and that's me, how your grandfather said, like, yes, but um, that, like, it kind of also depends on your family situation, too, right? Well, I would, um, but only on the conditions that my family are released. So it's more motivated by family rather than loyalty to a country. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways. And I think um, our generation now are still kind of grappling with that. And not only that, but having a lot of Nisei and even some Sansei be more quiet about their experiences during World War II um, has led our generation to have to mine for those questions or ask those questions. Right, today. right. I, I definitely have experienced that myself. So I'm curious, like, I guess for Johnny and Bethany, since um, you did have the opportunity or still do have the opportunity to talk to your grandfather about it, like, that's something that I kind of regret personally um but both my grandparents my grandfathers passed away when I was a kid so it wasn't as if I was ever gonna like I didn't know about the loyalty questionnaire when I was 10 um so I think I think it's really great that you did have the opportunity to have those conversations and I'd be curious to know maybe like what the rest of his family thought or if he like was able to recall any of those meetings that went on with people trying to rally one another to either say no or to say yes? Mm -hmm. For the meetings, I don't ever remember him talking about, uh, like, if there were any rallies. The there were definitely uh, ramifications for him when he submitted a no-yes answer. That, of course, meant that 
the government took him, separated him from his family, and sent him to Tule Lake camp, which was more of like a, a prison for for troublemakers and quote unquote disloyalists. Um, and Wait, so that's where are you talking went. about Grandpa Nakagawa? Uh, no, 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 not Tule Lake. McNeil Island Penitentiary. Correct. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, that's the other that's side the, of the family. Yeah, the other side of the family, our great-grandfather, he was a community leader. He was the leader of the, the farming community in the part of California that he was in. And so because of that, he was immediately put on the FBI's watch list. And they were going to um, put him in like in like a federal prison. But he had a cro- chronic illness um, so they kind of left him alone. But then one day he went into town to pay a debt and the FBI was like, wait, where's your chronic illness? It, it wasn't like an apparent illness. They basically spirited him away and he just never came home. And his family was like, where is he? What's going on? And it took them a while to figure out where exactly that their their father and husband had gone. Um, so he was the one that listened to Tuli Lake. Yeah, so that great-grandfather, the FBI, took him to ultimately a Department of Justice camp in Santa Fe. And, you know, because he had immigrated, he was automatically deemed, you know, alien. Because he was a community leader, he was labeled enemy alien. And um, the rest of his family, like my grandpa and whatnot, they were in Tule Lake, One of my great aunts, um, she said she remembers getting letters from her dad and things would be like blacked out or they would have taken like a razor and like cut out some of his letters. Um, It was highly censored. But yeah, as Johnny said, he was he was ill and eventually was released from Santa Fe and rejoined his family in Tule Lake, but he died, like, I want to say, like, two months after he arrived. I mean, that's another thing that, like, weighs on me heavily, to have, like, a great-grandfather who died in the camps. And just knowing, you know, if he had just been sick at home back in, you know, his hometown, like, maybe he could have gotten, like, medical care or whatnot. But just, yeah, there's a lot of what-ifs. Yeah, can I go back to Andy's question about... Um, you know, if people had organized. Mm -hmm. So my grandpa, George, the one at Minidoka, um, he had said no, yes. And then it's kind of weird because people, you know, who didn't say yes, yes, um, generally were sent to Tule Lake because, you know, those, that's the camp of like the so-called disloyals. For some reason, he wasn't sent to Tule Lake after the loyalty questionnaire. However, when the U.S. tried to draft him out of Minidoka um, a little while later, he resisted that draft, and that's, that's when the government got him. He was sent to McNeil Island Penitentiary, and he was with a group of some other young men from Minidoka and the Heart Mountain Boys who also resisted, they eventually were sent to McNeil Island as well. However, my grandpa said that while the Heart Mountain Boys, they had organized as a group and kind of like presented um, as a strong front of like, we have decided, you know, we're not going to fight, etc. My grandpa said that in Minidoka, he had a, a court hearing about the draft resistance 
all of the young men were presented um, as individual cases. So that was one difference. That's interesting because, um, like, there's always that really famous picture of the Heart Mountain Fair Play Committee, right? Like, all those guys just sitting in a row um, with, like, this kind of blank stare on their face while they're waiting for to be tried, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting that your grandfather had, like, the opposite experience of being tried as an individual, which to me would be, like, way more scary. For sure, for sure, Yeah. My grandpa said that the attorney or whatever that was supposed to represent him, like, didn't give a shit. Like, they didn't, they could care less about us, you know, they were not advocating for us whatsoever. Mm, I can Um, hear him saying that. (laughs) And the ramifications of this decision, like, didn't just affect my grandpa, but, like, his entire family. Like, he didn't talk about it. Like, my great-grandmother, she had a barbershop in... Nihonmachi in Seattle. And um, she had it before the war and after the war. After the war, um, she noticed that um, a lot of the Isais were like not coming to her barbershop. So she thought, oh, maybe it's the location. And so she moved locations, something a little bit more central, and they still wouldn't come. And then that's when she realized they are, they're shunning me because one of my sons refused to fight um, for the U.S. Mm. And so my grandpa, he always felt very guilty about that. Um, You know, like his family being ostracized. My mom shared that his friends after the war, the only people who would associate with him were other draft resistors. Um, And even in 2015, you know, like, Decades after these events, um, I went on the pilgrimage with my grandpa and he told me, like, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell them, you know, that I was no yes. Don't tell them I was a draft resistor and I was at McNeil. Um, And, you know, despite me being very proud of him and like, grandpa, there was no right decision whether you fought or not, you know, like... I'm really sorry that the community treated you like this, but ultimately, like, it's the U.S. government who put you all in this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like there is a sense of shame and guilt, and there is a lot of silence. Um, And I I think his silence about not sharing about a story, about, you know, not letting folks know who he was... I see it as a form of protection for his family, um, you know, so that my mom and my auntie wouldn't face as much stigma as, you know, he faced and that his, his mom and siblings face as well. So, yeah, I think for me hearing these stories and hearing them pretty, Late in my life, um, my grandma, she was very outspoken. She shared a lot of stories about camp, but she didn't really go into, like, my grandpa's side just because he didn't really want to talk about that. And um, I think she respected his wishes. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think hearing and learning about not just, you know, 
the Japanese American World War II experience, which most people don't know anyway. But to kind of hear this hidden side of like, well, there are folks, you know, who are almost like blacklisted because of how they responded to the situation. Um, it has really taught me to, I think, be more understanding. When I first heard about it, I was like really angry and I was like, how dare, you know, other folks in the Japanese American community, how dare they ostracize, you know, my grandpa's family? Like, it's just a terrible situation. Like, why are you being divided? And then over time, realizing some of these folks' actions is also to protect their families as well, you know, to not associate with certain people who are seen as like disloyal or might get their families in trouble. Yeah. I see it as, you know, just trying to survive, trying to take care of their families the best that they knew. And I really hope that my generation and future generations, you know, all of this will kind of like come out into the light and um, we could share about like this happened and let's learn from this and not allow um, similar situations to divide us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause this, it was a situation that honestly never should have happened. And I mean, as, as we mentioned, there were those committees that came up once the questionnaire came out and sort of fought against it or it tried to rally people to answer one way or the no or another. Um, and it actually succeeded in some way because the army ended up actually changing uh, some of the questions and the wordings of the questions um, a few months after the initial questionnaire came out. Of course, by then it was a little too late and the ramifications had already happened and there was already that divide between the community. Oh. And, and unfortunately those stories and, and the divide has lasted the last 60, almost 70 years now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think in a large part, it really has been because of the story, the, the work of Sansei and Yonsei and now Gosei uh, to bring these stories to light. Now that we understand what, dire circumstances that our families were in during the war and how much pressure was put on them to answer a specific way. Cause I mean, within the last few years, we've had um, sort of a resurgence of, of these kinds of stories. We've heard more about John Okada's novel, No, No Boy, which was really the first novel written by a, a camp survivor. And he was a no, no boy. Of course it was very, it, it wasn't a popular seller and it wasn't very well known until many years after he passed away. But that's come to light. And then, of course, with the JCL uh, coming out in recent years and apologizing back in, I think, 2014, 2015, they apologized to the uh, draft resistors at Minidoka and Hart Mountain. And then more recently, uh, apologizing to all of the Nona boys who were at Tui Lake uh, and anyone who answered no on the loyalty questionnaire. I think it's been a really big push by our generations and the more recent generations who have grown up with this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a question uh, for for Andy. I was like wondering. Um, so you've worked a lot with like members of the four four two and other military members of the JA community. Have you had like a chance to like talk to any of them about their experiences, like the decisions that they made? Yeah. Um, so fortunately, there are still a few um, veterans that are still active with Go for Broke locally, um, and we do have. Like one of the biggest perks of this job is um, we have these bi-monthly veterans meetings 
Um, so every other Monday, um, it's basically a potluck lunch, but it's a good way to get to know them. Um, and especially since, like, I, as I mentioned earlier, like both my grandparents passed away when I was really young. Um, so I didn't have the same opportunities or even the same, like, understandings of and context of what kind of questions to ask. But I think as we were kind of talking about before, like, there wasn't really a right answer for the most mm. part. Um, I think there's still a few veterans who would disagree with that, that there definitely was a right answer, and the answer was to say yes and to serve. But as an organization, I think we're exploring more, like, how we can kind of go into those nuances and that every situation is individual and can be based on so many different factors. And even just the outcomes, as we were kind of talking about before, like the ramifications of answering the loyalty questionnaire, being in this position too and having to research more prominent figures to research their stories and know that they became of more prominence um, was mainly because of the GI Bill and they took advantage of that, right? So even at an economic standpoint, the fact that those that did say yes to this loyalty questionnaire or did decide to volunteer and then decided to take advantage of the GI Bill had this um, higher level of education that could then propel them and their family to um, a different economic class, which wasn't necessarily guaranteed or afforded to those that weren't or didn't go. Yeah, I think since we, we sort of discussed how us as, as future generations of Japanese Americans are continuing to bring these stories to light. I think we want to talk a little bit about how this sort of situation of duress has been seen again more recently with um, after 9-11, people questioning the loyalty of Muslim and Arab Americans here in the U.S. or even more, even more recently, questioning Chinese scientists and Chinese students and their loyalty and people accusing them of, of being spies and Right. That, that's fairly recent. That happened just a few months ago, right? Yeah, that's. I think that was at the tail end of May in the middle of all this COVID stuff. And I think that's sort of what a lot of Japanese Americans are starting to look towards is how our story of incarceration and how this idea of the loyalty questionnaire and our, our own loyalty being questioned, how we can apply that today. So wondering if any of you have thoughts on that and how our stories can help others now. Well, for me, I think um, that's part of the reason why Go Broke National Education Center exists is um, to preserve the legacy of these Japanese-American World War II veterans, but also um, to use it as a tool, right? Like, it's a 75-year-old story, um, so it's easy for people to brush it off as just history um, and something being really old, um, but there's a lot of relevance to it, and, and Unfortunately, it seems like there's always been a lot of relevance to it. Uh, people have certain notions of what America is and what America should be and also what America can be, right? And so the idea of loyalty can also change too. Um, you can, I think people can get more attached or be more loyal to this ideal um, rather than what it actually is or like an actual place. It seems like a lot of people nowadays are more attached to like the symbol of the American flag, like the symbol of what America should be rather than what it actually is and facing with those, those underlying issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen, 
that idea of civil disobedience like many of like many Japanese Americans did during the war. We've seen the idea of civil disobedience coming up now with the protests going on um, and, and fighting for immigrant rights. Just like during the war, there is no one right or wrong way to go about it. It's we are a product of our time and we do what we think is right at that time. And hindsight is 2020. So what we see today and what we, how we view the loyalty questionnaire and what we view, um, how we view how people answer during the war is going to be very different from what we're doing now and how people view what we do now in the future. Yeah. And also like, because during world war two, um, during that time, the, dominant generations were like the Issei and the Nisei. So there was that split between citizenship, like who could be a citizen and who couldn't be a citizen. Um, I think also plays into today. And like lately in my like thinking of what is loyalty um, and like why people are protesting, like it doesn't, it's not even about having to prove that you are American or what your Americanness is. I think, it's important for people to just like fight for basic human rights and like how, whether like, why should it matter who you're loyal to? You should be treated with decency, you know, and have these certain inalienable rights. Right. Cause like, like a common retort to like people protesting is somebody saying like, Oh, well, if you don't like it here, like you should go back to wherever you came from. But like, no, it's, Protesting isn't a sign of disloyalty. It's a sign of wanting to make this country more equal, to make it better, to make it the best country it can be for everybody, not just the, the groups that are at the top. Yeah. I think just thinking about like loyalty, the U.S. and all of that, um, and what Johnny just mentioned about like, oh, you know, you should go back where you come from if you don't like it etc and thinking about the concentration camps here um i think it's really important to remember that the u.s was and is built off the genocide of native americans and the enslavement of africans and you know like that is United States at the very core. If we look at the injustices that our grandparents and our ancestors went through, we look at those concentration camps, like in Minidoka in the middle of Idaho, not all of those places, like displacement, forced removal, incarceration. It's been the entire legacy of the U.S. You think about Native Americans being, you know, forcibly removed onto reservations. You know, like all of our histories um, are connected. And so I was thinking about like, oh, you know, being loyal to the U.S. Well, we really need to examine what is the U.S.? How was it founded, you know? And like, what are these rights that supposedly we uphold or strive for and who is deserving of them. Um, I think the work that pseudo for solidarity and um, organizations like La Resistencia, 
in regard to the detention centers and, you know, the separations of families and whatnot. Yes, never again is now, but like, it has always been this way. I think, yeah, there needs to be an examination of like, what is the U.S.? And um, I think like, yeah, with the, the recent uprisings and protests and whatnot, just like a reexamination of the systems that are in place, functioning exactly the way that they were built and how we need to dismantle those. Yeah, that's like a, an apt assessment of getting to the deeper why of why are all of our loyalties being questioned? Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a deep question. And by question. whom? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thank you to Bethany and to Andy for coming on to our show. It was great hearing from both of you and just hearing your thoughts on this subject. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for thank- having me. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Be sure to join us for next week's episode on what is citizenship? We're going to be talking more about what we've started to break the surface of in this episode. Yeah, it will continue the conversation we started today around the idea of loyalty and citizenship. But if you'd like to learn more about the infamous loyalty questionnaire and the questions asked within it, as well as some of the statistics behind people who answered yes, people who answered no, and some of the volunteers for the Army, make sure you go on the jampilgrimages.com website, click on the Nikkei Rising tab, and you'll find more history there. Next week, your own state hosts will be Yoko and Hiro. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising, such as our newly released JA Opportunity Fairs and DI Yonsei. The Yonsei Podcast is created by Hiro Edeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Fedorenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisebly with theme music by Michelle Heckert. Thank you for listening. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei. <laughs>